The following audio is from Cross Life Church in Tampa, Florida. We are a church that exists to help people find Christ, their place in the body, and their mission to the world. Our calling is to raise leaders and plant churches. So if you live in the Hudson area or near Wester Chapel, you can also check us out at one of our other locations. For more information, visit us at crosslife.net. All right. Well, we're in John chapter 7. And I made comment last week that when we moved into John chapter 6, John chapter 6 was really kind of a pivotal point that John brings out in the ministry of Jesus because it is, it is there where as Jesus continues to clarify why he came and the implications of what that looked like for each person, um, through John's gospel, <clears throat> you just see him just narrowing down the truth. And that's not uncommon. So they're in Jerusalem, and uh, this is like the city of saints, you know. This is the uh, Mecca of religion for the Jews. And when Jesus gets in there, he's just going... It is like they went way out of bounds with so many things from God's intention. And I made comment with Matthew that Jesus kept saying, you heard it said, but I say. And so we see that today. I can tell you right now, we could go into a lot of churches that have just, they just went way out of the boundaries, way outside the boundaries as far as what the church is supposed to be, what it's supposed to look like, and how they're supposed to act and behave. And so Jesus comes under this scene and he just keeps narrowing down truth. This is the kingdom of God and this is what the kingdom of God looks like and this is how you're this is how you are to respond concerning truth and this is the life that you're supposed to live concerning God and the kingdom of God. And so what happens is we just see resentment grow against Jesus and his ministry but not primarily from the people, but from the religious leaders. Because what Jesus keeps doing is he just keeps correcting them about their belief, and he, correct, and he challenges them concerning their unbelief. Have you ever run into somebody that uh, thinks that they're just super smart about anything, and you start challenging what they believe? Especially in a church, boy, I tell you what, you go and you go to somebody, they got a doctorate in theology, and you go up and start challenging what they believe, man, they're the first people to come unglued. This is exactly what was happening with religious leaders. They were just coming undone. And so, if you turn in your Bible to John chapter 7, looking at the first, the introduction, and really all the way up until you get to chap, uh, verse 37, there is Jesus is talking to the people, and uh, Jesus is in this conflict between the religious leaders and him concerning his message and his ministry, and the people are in the middle. So here is the Jewish leaders that uh, they look to and respect. Uh, they're the ones that are supposed to be hearing from God, and they're the ones that are supposed to be guiding and Jesus is in the middle, and the people are on the other side, and Jesus is really just not even looking at them, but just if, if you were to, he's speaking, and his words are heard, and the people are going, oh my goodness, is this Messiah? And they don't like that, and so they're chiding the people, 
Matter of fact, it's, I think I said last week, this whole idea is cancel culture is not new because the Jewish leaders just wanted to squash anything and anyone that had anything good to say about Jesus. And we just see that is uh, this continuing conflict and debate over who Jesus is. So verse 1 says, as, so we leave from, what was the, what was the end of chapter 6? There was, a, I even, I've forgotten. The end of the chapter 6, whatever happened there, it says, after this, after whatever happened there, Jesus went around in Galilee. And it says this, he did not want to go around Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. So very quickly this escalated. They figured the only way to solve this problem, to get this guy to shut up, was to kill him. Wow. That's, that's some kind of something. And then it says, but when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, to Jesus, hey, why don't you leave Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the good works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. And since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And then this uh, qualifying verse in chapter 5, it says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So his brothers are saying, you just need to go, you just you just need to show yourself. Maybe the brothers needed more proof to believe who Jesus was. And you've got to understand that, you know, they lived with him. You know, especially, uh, you know, the family dynamic. You got some brothers, and that's your kid brother, or that's your older brother, and he's, or the, you know, just that whole deal. And they're going, whoa, wait a minute, you're Messiah? You're the, you're the, we beat you up when we were kids. You know, whatever the scenarios were. So they were having a struggle over believing. And Jesus tells his disciples like he does many times, yeah, my time's not yet. Said it to Mary when um, at the wedding of Canaan. He goes, my time is not yet. It's not here. And so... He says to his brother, he says, my time's not yet. You go ahead and go to the festival. But then we find out that Jesus does, he goes ahead and he does leave the festival to go. After his brothers leave, he also went. But he went in secret because for whatever reason, he didn't want himself to be known. He didn't want to be, uh, maybe have the conflict uh, of the Jews right away. So he goes to the f uh, festival, but he goes there in secret. Now, while the festival's going on, the crowds, uh, there was this whisper in the crowds. So you got to know that uh, all the stuff that's taking, place on, that's taking place with Jesus is not done in secret. They didn't have uh, Twitter, Facebook, CNN, they, they didn't have any news now, but everybody knew what was going on. They had heard about this one that, is he Messiah? That's a buzz, and it's a buzz because the Jewish people were looking for their Messiah to come. Is this the one that God had said? And so there's the, all these whispers in the crowd about him. And in the whispers in the crowd, some said he's a good man, and others said, no, he deceives the people. I wonder how, where those two things came from. 
I wonder if it was the people saying he's a good man and the religious leaders going, yeah, no, he's just a deceiver. It's, I'm not sure, it's hard to say, but with all that has taken place just up to this point. And he said, uh, then it says, but no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders, because again, they would chide him. And so he goes in secretly. The feast in itself, the entirety of the feast is eight days. And it says that halfway through the feast, uh, Jesus goes up into the temple courts and he begins to teach the people. And as he's teaching the people, the Jews there were amazed at his teaching. And they said, I, we don't, we, how'd this guy learn? Where did this guy get his learning? Uh, he hasn't been taught. He, he, he's not a Pharisee. He hasn't gone through any training. How, how does this man know what he knows? And Jesus said to them, you need to understand my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Which is kind of an interesting thought. I render it like this. The idea that spiritual understanding is not produced solely on learning facts or the things you do procedures, but rather it depends on obedience to known truth, to the truth concerning the will of God. So obedience to God's knowing will develops discernment between falsehood and truth. This we need to grab a hold of. Look at, if you are out there just spurning God's truth and living the way you want. You are dumb as a rock when it comes to spiritual things. You think you understand life. You think you understand what's going on. You think you see clearly about life. You are so blinded, very blinded, concerning truth and the things of God. What does it say about the Gentiles? You know, we like to say, well, I'm a believer, so I'm exempt. When you begin to live like a Gentile, when you begin to live like a non-believer, when you begin to do stiff-arm God, you all of a sudden are in a very dark place and you cannot see. That's an illusion. You think you know truth. You think you see clearly. You think you know what life is. You are blinded. And you're blinded by the devil. He has blinded your eyes to the truth so that you cannot see truth. There is one thing the devil wants to do, and that is for you to stiff arm God so that he can control your life and lead you down a way to put into you to believe things that aren't true for one specific, one specific reason, and it's to destroy your life to take you to hell. That's his one goal. And if we think otherwise, we're crazy. That is the truth. And so each one of us can testify to facts. When we begin to wander away from God, we begin to accept all kinds of things into our life. Right? How, who hasn't done that? We, all of a sudden, it's, it's like you're here, and then when you, it's almost like you're, it's, it's not this way, but, but, but it's almost like, so you see this knoll of a hill that would look like this, kind of an upside-down V, and you're walking in this way that God had set. When you begin to get off that path, it's very steep. 
And it just, it, there's, it's, it's easy to keep losing ground. You continue to walk away. And so here, Jesus is telling the people, you think you understand what truth is? No, you don't. If, if you're not doing what you know concerning the will of God, well, then you can't even understand God or the things of God. You need to first be obedient to the truth. That's what we need to get. And I can tell you, I've talked to so many people that have wandered away, and they said, I just don't know if I can get back. And the devil tells them you can't get back, because the devil wants to do the whole Catholic thing. You know, you've got to pay penance. But it's not like the three R fathers and however hell marries. It's like, no, the only way for you to get right is you're just going to have to pay your dues, which is, let me just say this, is a lie. When you fall from grace, you don't have to pay dues to get back. You have to repent to get back. And if you don't repent, and repentance again is not, I'm sorry for what I did, shame on me. It's not, it's not just saying, shame on me, I should probably do better. It is repenting. It is turning, it is walking, and it is embracing. That's repentance. When you get there, that's the place where we need to be. And again, I'm looking around this room. I'm telling you, there's not one of us in here that hasn't been in need of that walk in whatever areas of your life. And when you look back, you already understand that once you decided to, to, to turn, it just... It, you just started to allow more things in your life. You started to believe other things. And then when God finally, or you, uh, bumped your head against the wall long enough, and finally said you had no other choice and you repented, you all of a sudden went, aha, it, he was lying, the devil was lying to me all along. I was sharing with a friend the other day. Um, uh, we were in, uh, I can't remember where we were at. I don't know if it was Universal Studios area in Disney. I don't know if it's some kind of theme park. I, I don't remember exactly where it was. Maybe, it, yeah, anyway. We're at this place, and they're doing this Western deal. And there's this, you sit down, you have the bleachers, and they're doing this whole Western uh, gun shooting, slinging thing, and kind of a show. When, you, when we got, and we're sitting here, and it's down like if you could imagine, so you're here, and you're looking this way, and there's like buildings, there's the saloon, the general store, the barbershop, the sheriffs, you know, the whole thing. There's like a whole town. They got the wagons and horses, and we see all the stuff that's going on. After the, after the show, they had a, like a tram thing that you could get on, and then they would drive you down the street. So you go down the street, and as soon as you look to the left and the right, you understand that what there was is there were just two sides to the buildings. They weren't real. It was fake. You couldn't tell. You, I just thought, wow, man, look at what they built. But when you went down the street, and then you get to the end, and when you turn back, you see it was all fake. It was all propped up. There wasn't anything real. And you saw all the cowboys falling off the thing, and you see all these big uh, air things that they were falling onto. It was fake. 
And so what we need to understand in, in our life as believers, the, the necessity for us to follow God's known truth and stay where we are, otherwise the devil will just lead us down a fake path. He'll make us see whatever he wants us to see and we'll believe whatever it is. But until you get so far and you bump your head and bump your head, it's, repentance is when you turn around and you walk toward God, you see the lie. You see the fake. You see the false. And so Jesus, to me, he's just saying, look, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching is from God or whether I speak on my own. Here, you're going to learn the truth. So then he proceeds to tell him, he said, matter of fact, Moses gave you the law and not one of you keep it. He's another another dig, another truth that he's pointing out. And so, in verse 21, then, it seems to me the thing that the Jews were hanging on to, their great offense against Jesus is that he healed somebody on the Sabbath. Because in verse 21, he says, Jesus replied, then after that, Jesus replied, you know what, I worked on the Sabbath by healing a man, and you were surprised but you work on the Sabbath also. And then he goes on to say, whenever your child is circumcised and you circumcise your child on the Sabbath, that is a, that's in, in what you're saying, it's a breaking of the law. You're doing work. You can't do that on the Sabbath, but you do it. And, and he qualifies it. He says, when the correct time of your circumcise your children falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and do it as you should. So why should I be condemned? So Jesus is saying, so why should I be condemned for making a man completely well on the Sabbath? Verse 24, what you need to do is stop judging by, what you, by mere appearances. And you need to make right judgments. Now, this isn't the first time this has happened with Jesus and the Sabbath. The Jews trying to figure out some kind of something to pin Jesus down to, to kill Jesus, trying to find some cause to bring him to trial. And he's alluded to who he was, but he didn't come right out. Matter of fact, we're going to find out later in John, as soon as he comes out and basically says, I'm Messiah, then they kill him. But all these illusions, he's doing all these things as trying to get their attention to point to what they should know. And so here they are... Um, as they're challenging him uh, with healing on the Sabbath, he's going, you know, y'all hypocrites. You do, you work on the Sabbath. And so we find out in Matthew chapter 12, uh, when they challenged him for healing a man's withered hand, uh, he said to them, what, sh what man shall there be among you that shall have a sheep? And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not lay a hold on it and lift it up? How much better then is a man than sheep? So then, it is lawful, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then in Mark chapter 3, concerning the same thing, uh, the, the response he asks, he, Mark says it this way, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And it says that they remain silent. And then there's the incident where he heals a crippled woman, and uh, the Jews were angered because Jesus healed this woman on the Sabbath. 
So the leaders of the synagogue said to the people, hey, there are six days to work, so come and be healed on those days and not on the Sabbath. (laughs) And the Lord said, you are hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall, lead it out to give its water, that's work, yeah, that's, you do that. You do it on the Sabbath. He says, Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? And it says, As he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced for the glorious things that he had done. So again... Clearly, we're seeing the religious leaders on this side do not like anything about Jesus because he didn't do what they thought. He wasn't who they thought he was, should be. The people are seeing all these things. They're rejoicing. So the only, the only course that they feel they have is to shut this guy up. Otherwise, all these people will continue to believe in Jesus. And that is not what they want because they think... They know what's best. They think they have it all right. And so you find then in verses 25 through 36, there's this whole question, can this be the Messiah? In verse 25, it says, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. I love this. You got to know this the, uh, you got to know that the religious leaders heard this. Have the authorities concluded that this is the Messiah? <laughs> so the next thing they do is they take temple guards out to arrest him. They got to just shut this. They get him off the street, shut him up, get him out of here. And then the people go say, but. Um, we know where this, then the, the conversation moves on, they say, but we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. And Jesus responds in verses 28 and 29, he says, so you think you know who I am? Apparently, some in the crowd was from the area where Jesus had grown up. And I'm sure there were a lot of widespread conversations about People going, is this the Messiah? And somebody from their hometown going, that's, no, man, that's like Jesus. He's like a carpenter's son. Yeah, he's, I know his brothers and sisters. I, I grew up with him. So possibly that had continued to spread. And Jesus says, well, you think you know where I'm from? I, I, I'm not here on my own authority. But he who sent me is true. Now, you don't know him, But I know him because I am from him and he has sent me. So once again, Jesus is trying to validate the fact and affirm who he is. That his origin is divine. That he is from the Father. That he has been sent and he has a mission. And his mission is not the mission he has determined, but the mission is what God had determined for him. And so, again, at this... the Pharisees, they're just they're going to send guards, they're going to get him arrested and get him out of there. Any thoughts up to this point? You know, I think we see a lot of it too. Is, uh, I wonder how much of it was like just jealousy. 
because the attention used to always be on the leaders. But then when Jesus showed up and started preaching and, and uh, expressing who he really was and started having believers, I mean, having followers believe in him, the authority that they thought they had was diminishing too. Okay, someone else? No. Thank you. Someone else? Any thoughts up to this point of anything? I know there's a few things that I didn't cover in there. Wow. Y'all never had your coffee. All right. All right, well, let's, let's move to this next section. Uh, chapter 7, verses 38, uh, 37, 38, and 39. But I kind of need to set the scene. So it's Jerusalem. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of the Tabernacles was one of three feasts where all the Jewish males were supposed to go to Jerusalem to worship. From my studying, um, they say that the population in Jerusalem normally was somewhere around 25,000 people. But during the Feast of Tabernacles, it would have, they said it would have swelled four to five times its size. So there could have been 100 to 125,000 people in Jerusalem. And how, what did we decide? How big was Jerusalem? 600 acres. Six, 600 acres? Whatever it was. Everything being central, central around the temple. So that whole area just would have been, it would have been packed out uh, in Jerusalem. Now I said already that the feast uh, um, lasted, the totality of the feast was eight days. And during this celebration, what happened is that each family constructed its own temporary shelter of branches to live in for the period of the feast for those seven days. And doing this was a reminder of their years of wandering in the desert, and it caused the people to be reminded of God's dwelling presence with them, and God's provision, protection, and faithfulness to them during their wilderness journey all the way into the entrance into the promised land. And so the Feast of the Tabernacles, um, it was a joyous celebration. It took place in fall, late fall. All the crops had been harvested. Uh, They had all been put up. All the fruits had been processed and stored. And the people, it it was just a festive time. And while there, there was, this, uh, there was this thankfulness from the people's hearts and there was gladness and expectancy, not just um, for the time that they were there and their celebration, but also an expectancy of a new year. So I said that um, as they celebrated this time, one of the other things that they did in this celebration was there was this expectancy for God to send the latter rains. 
the latter reigns upon the earth. So you know, um, well, my father, he was a father-in-law, he was a farmer. So in the fall, they anticipated rain and snow that would come and that would get nutrients to the soil, would water the soil and would prepare the soil in the spring so that when they began to plow the dirt, uh, the soil would be prepared for a the <clears throat> new crop of the land. And so during the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, everybody that was there, it was a reminder for them, uh, it was kind of a look back, a reminder how God had provided for them, how He had provided food, how He had provided water from the rock that that uh, gave them the sustainment that they need and how God sheltered over them through the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. This is, this is hard to grab a hold of. For 40 years, a pillar of fire and a pillar of a cloud for 40 years. God's provision for 40 years God's provision that their clothes didn't wear out, the shoes didn't wear out for 40 years. The day that they're going to go into the promised land, boom. No cloud, no fire, no manna. It's, it's a new, it's the dawn of a new day for Israel. So keep, kind of keep this in your head as, it's significant as Jesus is here during this time and the, the things that he says and what takes place. So, so it caused them to look back. It would have caused them to look presently where they are with the celebration of God's provision and the prayer for an expectancy for the new year. But it also looked toward the future and spoke prophetically of the coming days of the Messiah when God's blessing would be poured out on the nation, that, as a prophet said, living waters would flow from Jerusalem. In which when you studied out, these living waters, which God through the prophets, they called it the latter rain, would be poured out. So there in this celebration, and all these things are relevant all these things are there. All these things are there and all the, the rites that took place and all the celebration, all these things were there right in their face. And so, during the days of the second temple when it was built, the Jews had added some extra traditions to not just this feast, but other feasts, but this one in particular. And a part of the celebration that they added, a part of the a ritual that they added, so to speak, uh, to this uh, uh, Feast of Tabernacles is that the priests would carry water to the altar in the temple, recalling God's provision as water from the rock, Remind, remembering how God uh, brought water from a rock to give life-sustaining water to His people. And so what would happen is in the morning, each morning of the feast at sunrise, uh, the priests and the people would gather up on the temple mount. And then there would be this long procession down to the pool of um, Salome, where the priests would take 
a gold pitcher. They would dip it into the water. And by the way, this water, this pool of Siloam was spring-fed. And back in the day, they said that uh, a living water, moving water was called, a spring-fed would be called living water. And so they would dip this pitcher in uh, to the water, and then there would be this procession, there would be the blowing of the shafar, and there would be singing and the chanting, and they would specifically be chanting and singing from Psalms chapter 12, and they would, they would make their ascent up onto the temple mount, and then when they got there with fanfare, then the priest would take the pitcher of water and he'd pour it on the altar as a sacrifice to God for his, or a thank offering to God for his goodness and his faithfulness for who he was and how he had provided. And so they did that for actually eight days, eight mornings that took place. Now, what's interesting to me is that um, the chanting that they did that came out of Isaiah chapter 12. Oh, wait, I'm jumping ahead. Let me get back here. Uh, let's see. So it says that, so this is the setting. So the next verse then says, and on the last day of the feast, the last day. So Jesus goes there in the middle and talks to the people, but on the last day of the feasts, it says the great day of the feasts, the priests would gather they would go down, they would return with their altar, they would return to the altar, they would then, on that last day, they would circle the altar seven times, and then they would pour their water on the altar. And many believe that the circling of that altar seven times was reminiscent of circling the first city of Jericho seven times before conquering it and entering into the rest of the land that God had promised. So this is this like this whole new day, this whole transitioning. If you can kind of get the picture of all these things that are taking place, remembering what had happened, and they're on the precipice of a, of a new day, this starting of a, of a new time. Matter of fact, in my mind, there's, there's just all little nuances and how valid they are, I don't know. But if it was the eighth day, what does eight mean in God's numbered timetable? New beginnings. So just in, I'm going through this just clicking away at, oh my goodness, that meant that, that meant that, that meant that, that meant that, that symbolized this, this was a shadow of that. And so this culminative time. And again, it's the last of the feasts. And God had established all the feasts for the specific intent and purpose to remind us people who he was, who they were, and the future that was ahead of them. So all this is playing out, at least in my head. Now, it's also interesting that this last day or great day of the feast was called uh, Hashanah Rabbah. How's that for you, for an enunciation? But it means, please save us now. Please save us now. Please save us now. And so I mentioned that uh, they were chanting or out of Isaiah chapter 12, and Isaiah chapter 12 is just six verses, and it goes like this. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, that you might comfort me. 
Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord. God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation with joy. You will draw waters from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, people proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he's done gloriously. Let this be made known to all the earth, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Wow, there's just a lot in there. So it was right there. It was at that time this took place. So Jesus, it says, he stood up and cried out with a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So the Jews had been celebrating in John chapter 7 this very thing about, and familiar with God's provision of this life-giving physical water in the Old Testament that sustained them. And as they celebrated the rituals associated with the feast for seven days, the Jews were in a sense reenacting this picture of God's Old Testament provision of living water. Uh, life-giving water from the rock as they would dip the water into the pool and would transport it back up to the top of the hill through the water gate into the temple up to the altar and would pour it out. Now, I don't know. I'm not sure. I would never be able to prove this and I'm not even saying it happened exactly this way. But it says that on the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, Jesus cried out. Here's how it plays out in my mind. They go up the last day, they get the pitch of the water, they're all celebrating, they're all chanting, they circle the altar seven times and the priest begins to pour out the water and as he begins to pour out the water in my mind's eye, Jesus says this, cries out. Now, now okay, so packed out. The temple's packed out. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, and he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from them. And so just imagine, uh, you know, Jesus declaring, uh, I am the living water. Uh, I'm the rock from which water flowed out in the wilderness. Come to me and drink. And so just, you can kind of imagine the uproar that possibly would have been in the crowd. You know, the priest had just poured the water in the offering as an appeal to Creator God to provide water for the people. Now, think with me. The appeal was to provide the latter rain. Now, Connect this with prophecy. Yes, did it mean just that it was crops for the next year, these latter rains, but prophetically, shadowing forward was this latter rain of Messiah when He would come and He would give life-giving water to the people. He would give spiritual water to the people. 
the people are all see this and they're just seeing it in its context in the physical, but there are so many things in here that foreshadow of something that was to come. And so Jesus basically, and, and, and Jesus as if to answer the prayer to the people says, I am he. I'm the one, I'm the life giver. And we know that it was the spiritual life giver. So whoever f- believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Any thoughts? Going back a little bit, I just, um, it, it's interesting to me how, how all the people would just look at the whole scenario and say, can the Messiah just be a man? Right? I mean, they know all the prophecy about born of a virgin, right? Born of, you know, and there's so many stories, um, even from different cultures of things like that, right? Hercules, Achilles, all these guys are some, the God came down, right? And had a child with whatever. So there's, from the outside the Jewish culture and inside the Jewish culture, they, they have to realize, if they took the time, they would realize, born of a virgin, Bethlehem, from the house of David, all the things that they question right there. Um, and then when we were reading the living water, <clears throat> if anyone is thirsty, if you go back to Ezekiel 47, and it talks about when all the water was coming out of the temple, and it would get this deep and this deep, it talked about the life from that water. It talked about that water changed all the salt water or water that's not you know, used for growing to fresh water, and they cause themes of life streams of life, the fish were abundant, the creatures were abundant, the trees were abundant, right? So it's just the representation of who God is or who Christ is in the temple and the, and the spirit that he's talking about of water, right? The Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, it's just, it, it's just amazing. Well, it's easy to look backwards, I think, right? Because we have all the information and go... Um, how can he come from Galilee? Does the scripture say that Christ comes from David's family? Check, he came from David's family. From Bethlehem, check, he was born there. Town David lived. You know, so the people were divided. But I, again, I think the people were more divided because the fear of the leadership, because it says that all the time, and the leader's just saying, no, that can't be him. That can't be him because. Did any, has any prophet come from Galilee? And I think, Actually, something Jonah did, right, mm-hmm. originally? So prophets do come from Galilee, right? Mm-hmm. It, it was just, it's, so, it's, it's just like our culture today. They can use one little thing to cancel you, mm-hmm. right? Let me just stick this brand on him, and he's done. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? The, I just want to connect your, um, the, what you read, that uh, whoever believes in me, in, uh, in the scripture said, stream of living water. Uh, am I on the right one? But he said, whoever, um, he, he's revealing. There's a lot of time that Jesus revealed who he is. And there's a whole lot of people that listens to him. But all that time, they're looking for different things. They believe because they see. They believe because they hear. But is that the belief that is actually what, is really deeper that 
Christ wants for us to impart to us. So there's a lot of miraculous thing, but and and he always says here connecting from Matthew of what we studied last time Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, stream of living water will flow from within. By this, the, by this, he meant that the spirit had, uh, the spirit whom those who believe in him were later to receive. Up to that time, spirit had not been given. Connecting it to our study last Friday, he always has invitation for us. Whether what is our tradition, cultures that we do, it becomes repetitious in our mind. That's why we start questioning because what happens is we just think that we follow the same thing. And he keeps inviting us. He keeps telling us in the word he never missed a thing. But he never pushes us because what he said is um, with all the things that I did, I'm inviting you. We have to listen and we have to hear because on what he said on last um, Friday, we had this Bible study. He said in Matthew 11 on 28, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden I will, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in this water that gives us life, it's always him. Here I am and yet we fail to see and that yet we keep going in our life. We think that we saw things in this current life we have, like what you mentioned earlier. Um, it's, it's the culture that is us, is giving us the wrong mentation. But we thought it's the right thing because people, group of people believes of what we see. But over and over and over, Christ tried to tell us, this is who I am. This is what's happening, even though miraculous things. But we actually turning back to that invitation and we don't want to be just resting on him. We just want to wrestle because we thought, our mind is strong enough to be able to do that. But then with all his calmness, he offers, come to me. I am he. Yes, I am powerful enough. And yet we don't look at it. The living water, the true one. And yet we ignore it. And at what point we would love to surrender that. And that's one thing. We keep seeking. We keep trying to know what's the truth. We trick, uh, we're trying to see what is good, feels good, and that's what we are now, the feeling good. And that time, oh, that's the answer to the question. But I've just learned in my life, it's not going to happen in three years of my search, but it really molds me. The obedience that he wants to us, it's not forcing, but he's just trying for us to be able to learn because he is the shepherd. He is the shepherd that is actually the living water, which is the truth, which is the life. Somebody else? You know, in chapter 6, when it, um, that discussion had come up, that um, Jesus asked them, who do you say I am? And um, Peter ends up telling them that... Um, you're the Christ. And Jesus says to him, um, you know, many of the disciples were withdrawing from him. And he said, you don't want to go away also, do you? 
And Peter says to him, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And um, in chapter 7, you start to see this separation of groups. You've got one he calls the Jews. These are the non-believing Jewish people. And then he has his disciples. And he says in verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, and its deeds are evil. And um, then he goes on to say, as you had pointed out in verse 17, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak from myself. And um, they were, this group of Jews were wanting to kill him because they didn't like who he was and they were unwilling to accept who he was. And then you have this group of people who are believing and wanting to follow after him. And you have this group that doesn't know <laughs> And they can't figure it quite out. And they're, but they're afraid to say anything out loud because they're afraid of this group of the Jews that they might kick them out of the synagogue or arrest them or do something to them. And we see that in today's world too, is that um, there's a great fear of you know, talking about Jesus. And it's becoming more and more <laughs> um, evident about talking about Jesus is that you're going to be canceled. You're going to, somebody's going to do something about that, you know. And so um, we just have to keep on holding on to that he, there is no other place to go because he has the words of eternal life. Mm -hmm. And if we want to keep walking in eternal life, we have to obey what he says. Mm. That's good. I there's a few things that I see in his, what uh, Sid said, this offer, this invitation. So whoever is thirsty, so you acknowledge that you have a need, let him come to me. That means everyone is welcome. The invitation is open to all. And to drink. It means everybody can receive. He's not withholding from anyone. So whoever believes in me is not in my mind, is not this generic, uh, I believe in God. It's an, an, an acknowledgement. It's acknowledgement of knowing that you're not where you need to be. It's acknowledgement of seeing your need in your life. And then you doing something about that as going to the place where your need can be met, and that is through Christ. So believing isn't a mental ascent. To believe has actions. It always has at, had actions. And some of us have been in places where we think it's a mental ascent and Jesus just brings us down this road of learning to understand that it's not a mental ascent. It is an action-based life that we are trusting Christ with our life. We are, see our need. We're going to him because we know that he can meet the need in our life. 